0: And this morning we're studying Psalm 46, a very present help in trouble, hope in God's help. Help! I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know, I need someone. I suspect whether you're nine years old or 90, you're familiar with that popular Beatles tune. The song transcends generations because its lyrics are so universally applicable to all of us. From birth to death, we all live in perpetual need of help. I've of course been particularly reminded of that here, especially of late these past six months, as Polly and I have uh, had to relearn how to parent a newborn you're not familiar parenting a newborn is essentially like working in the trauma section of the ER your job is just to try and keep everyone alive that is that is the bar of success and babies will do everything in their power to push you and test you on that I'm giving Elijah a bath this past week I turn around literally for a second to grab his towel turn back and he's face down in the bathwater I don't know why babies are so intent on hurting themselves Uh, I set him in the middle of the living room completely carpeted, no no stairs, electrical outlets, all that kind of stuff. He can't even crawl yet. I'm thinking it's completely baby-proof. I go back to finish unloading the dishes. I glance in from the kitchen. 60, 90 seconds later, he has managed to roll all the way over to the corner of the room and find the one little electrical outlet baby-proofing plug, you know, that little plastic cap that's ironically supposed to be the thing that protects him, that I've unplugged, I guess, to, to plug a cord in, and it's on the floor there, and he's managed, of course, to find it. He's desperately trying to swallow it before I can find him and save his life. Please don't call CPS on your pastor. I, I, I'm thankful uh, that his adoption was finalized two weeks ago, or else I couldn't share these stories because they'd never, they'd never let us keep him. But this is parenting, right? Those of you who have done it can feel me on this. This is parenting. From wiping booties and kissing boo-boos up to offering dating advice and borrowing the car, our kids constantly seem to need our help. And God knows we need His help in parenting them. And God has a funny way of bringing it all full circle at the end of our lives as well. Our utter dependence on others. I officiated Marianne Mansker's funeral service yesterday. She went home to be with the Lord after 91 and a half years, the last year of which was spent battling lymphoma, and her daughter Debbie, who also worships with us and was Marianne's primary uh, caregiver for the last few weeks of her in-home hospice. Debbie can personally attest for you to the fact that everyone who lives long enough, we will end up just like we started out, right? Barely able to move, in diapers, in utter need of dependency on others for our very survival. From the womb to the tomb, we need help. John Lennon might have thought that when I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Those we know are just the foolish, youthful years of prideful, presumed, independence when we don't think we need anyone for anything i got this on my own some of us never outgrow that unfortunately our prideful impulse to reject any and all help i get on to ellery my four-year-old when we play games together and she won't let me help her shuffle the deck of cards i'm like baby that is really hard for a four-year-old just let me help you no daddy I want to do it myself, right? But the reality is we're really no different as adults, are we? That that, that same prideful impulse that rejects help when the babysitter cancels on you last minute and you don't want to have to reach out to the neighbors and admit, I need help. When life throws you more than you can handle on your own, you lose your job, you lose a loved one, You move cities away from your support system. What is our natural inclination? Do we run to God for help? Or in our pride, do we declare, no, Daddy, I want to do it myself. God, I got this. But God, in His grace and His mercy, has a wonderful way of breaking us of that pride, doesn't He? of humbling us by whatever means necessary. Heck, he will send a pandemic to wreak havoc on the entire world just to wake us up to the reality of our desperate need for help. Convict us of the folly, the illusion of our self-sufficiency, to the fact that we really don't got it under control, that we really don't have it all together, but that's okay because God has it under control. He upholds the universe by the word of His power, Hebrews 1.3. And that very same sovereign, totally in control God promises us right here in Psalm 46 to be for us, for all of us who would repent of our pride and turn to Him for aid, a very present help in trouble. So, would you stand with me as you're able? And if you need help standing, don't be afraid to ask psalm 46 if you want to follow along in your bibles if you don't have a bible we'd love to gift you one of those at the info bar as well but hear the word of the lord this morning god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He he burns the chariots with fire be still and know that i am god i will be exalted among the nations i will be exalted in the earth the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our fortress selah this is the word of the lord let's pray Father, we thank You this morning once again for Your Word and for its promise of help. Very present help in our times of greatest need. God, we all have moments of total brokenness in this life when we're convicted of our desperate need for someone, something outside ourselves help us and yet god all too often we have many more moments where the illusion of self-sufficiency creeps in we think i got this father would you use your word this morning to break us of our pride to use your word as a double-edged sword to cut through and pierce through our hearts convict us our desperate, utter need for you, our God and our Savior. And God, as we realize that need, would you meet us with the good news of your sufficiency, your provision of that Savior in the person of your Son Jesus and what He's done for us? May He be exalted in all the earth. May He be exalted among the nations we pray this for your glory and for our edification this morning in christ's name amen you may be seated a word of context here we have examined um, psalms of lament we've studied psalms of adoration i'm going to categorize psalm 46 this morning as a psalm of taunt psalm 46 was basically written as a shout of triumph to be sung after victory in battle we're not exactly sure which battle which occasion of jerusalem the city of god referenced in verse 4, being defended by God, provided the immediate context for Psalm 46 to be written. There are two main theories. The first is the destruction of the armies of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir during the reign of Jehoshaphat, as recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The second possibility is that it recounts the destruction of the army of the Assyrian king Sennacherib during the reign of Hezekiah, as recorded in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Either way, Israel's basic message here is essentially the same. Our God rules, your king drools. That's that's your big picture kind of uh, summary. And our God, Yahweh, rules because He has promised to make good on His promise to be for us a very present help in our times of trouble. And specifically, God has helped the psalmist here. And God continues to help those of us today who belong to Him in four distinctive ways. So that's your four-point bulletin outline there. Number one, God helps us by providing protection. Verses 1-3. through 7b and 11b the psalmist opens in verse 1 with the assurance that God is our refuge and strength verse 7 and 11 he's going to call God our fortress psalm 46 is sometimes referred to as Martin Luther's psalm because it was his favorite of all the psalms and the one that inspired him to pen the most famous reformation hymn a mighty fortress is our God Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, we already spent an entire week detailing the hope that we find in God's promise of protection in Psalm 27, Whom Shall I Fear?, where God is similarly described as our stronghold, our shelter in the day of trouble, very similar language to Psalm 46, and so I would refer you back to that sermon from August, but I want to just quickly look at the powerful imagery evoked here in verses 2 through 3. The psalmist declares in verse 2, therefore, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, because of who God is in verse 1, we can now actually have the kind of confidence expressed in verses 2 and 3, therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. The psalmist closes his eyes and he pictures the most immutable, unshakable, solidly established uh, fixture that he can imagine. A mountain range. Like If anything's unmovable, a mountain range. And then he imagines those mountains being not just shaken, but being picked up and tossed all the way into the middle of the ocean. And in the midst of that scene, he calmly says, yeah, that wouldn't scare me too much. Now, how many of y'all have experienced an earthquake? Any, anyone? Okay, about half of us. I know uh, we shared this story with some of y'all already, but back in March, when we drove out to Utah to adopt Elijah, we were literally in Salt Lake for two nights, and the one morning that we were there just happened to be the morning of the biggest earthquake in the last 60 years in Salt Lake City. 5.7 magnitude, you might have seen it on national news, uh, just about eight, eight miles from the Airbnb where we were staying, so let me just quickly paint the scene for you seven in the morning the morning again of, of our birth mom's induction she is already at the hospital she's been induced polly and i are laying in bed praying literally just waiting for a call either to come pick up your new son or just kidding you have the rug pulled out from under you once again you drove all the way out to utah in the middle of a pandemic and you're going home without a child all right this is totally the, the birth mom's discretion that's the call we're waiting for one or the other Gives you a sense for the emotional state we're already in. My wife, God Lover, is a self-professed warrior. On a normal day, she's probably at like a seven on the anxiety scale. So on this particular morning, she starts at an eleven or twelve, like where she wakes up. And so we're lying in bed when the bed starts to vibrate. Like I didn't know this was one of those kind of Airbnbs. And within seconds, the room is rumbling. And then, moments later, the entire house is palpably shaking. Light bulbs blowing out, pictures falling off walls, onto the bed that we're in. I I froze. Polly is screaming. We seriously thought that the world was ending. For a moment there, I literally thought this is it. Jesus is returning, and apparently he's doing it in Salt Lake City. The Mormons were right all along. I I, I was the wrong religion. I'm still here. I missed the rapture. Right, I was very relieved when we ran half-dressed out into the hall and saw that our, our Airbnb host, who is Mormon, was still there. Okay, they didn't get raptured. So um, you want to talk about needing help, right? I mean I can assure you, Polly and I needed help changing our underwear after that traumatic event. But in all seriousness, that, that was us being 8 or 10 miles away from an earthquake that didn't even impact the topography of the area. An hour later, you couldn't even tell that there had been an earthquake. Now, I want you to imagine with me, standing at the base of one of those peaks in Salt Lake City, experiencing an earthquake so massive that the entire mountain range breaks off from the earth and starts, the earth's surface, and starts sliding into the nearby Salt Lake. That is the scene The psalmist is imagining here in Psalm 46 and he he says, eh. That's the confidence he has. God's protection. Verse 3, the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is again just trying to envision the most terrifying natural phenomena conceivable. Have any of you ever been out In the middle of the ocean when a storm rolls in anyone maybe less of us the first time I ever went scuba diving in the open water I was 11 years old I had just completed my certification all the bookwork and quizzes that can't possibly prepare you for scuba diving in the ocean Uh, I'd practiced in a swimming pool at the Y of course but that was about it and now all of a sudden we are boating out into uh, what I can only describe as the middle of nowhere, somewhere off the coast of Curacao, far enough that I can't see the land anymore. We finally get to the dive site and the dive master says, all right, it looks like there's a storm coming in, uh, but we're already all the way out here. I think we've got time for a quick dive right before the, the storm gets here and it gets too rough. Not exactly the words you want to hear the first time you're getting uh, into the middle of the ocean. My dad convinced me it would be all right, and so I started gearing up. It's my first time. I, of course, take twice as long to get ready as everyone else. The dive master is trying to be patient, but he also knows we need to get this show on the road. And, and so in my rush to get ready, I didn't even pause to really consider the roar and the foam of this pre-storm water that was getting churned up. And so, you know, I, I'm the last one off the boat. I climb up onto the, the side of the, the boat, and we're doing, you know, one of these entrances where you step off the boat and kind of fall, you know, four Three or four feet into the water and and splash and um, you know my heart's pounding. I put the oxygen in my mask, one big nervous last breath, and then I jump and immediately when I hit the water, the swells knock my dive mask off, knock the regulator out of my mouth. I'm just flailing, right? And fortunately, uh, my dad was of course already in the water, and so he helped me recover my mask and settle down. Only to realize that I'd forgotten my weight belt. Um, and so I was too buoyant to even sink down below the surface of the water, and so I had to climb back up the ladder and do it all over again. I will never forget what the roar and the foam, the swelling of those waters felt like on that day. That, That may have been the first time in my life that I thought, I may die today, right? Because I am vastly outmatched here. I am completely at the mercy of the sea. If this storm comes quicker than expected, I have no power over it. But you know who does? Psalm 89, nine. You, O Lord, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It's a beautiful story in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is sailing with His disciples and a storm whips up. Jesus is so at peace that He's just asleep. But the disciples wake Him up frantically and mark says he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still okay remember those words be still we're going to come back to that at the end of the psalm and the wind ceased and there was a great calm and he said to them why are you so afraid have you still no faith and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? It's funny, Mark says they feared the storm, but ironically when Jesus calms it, they're filled with, quote, great fear of Him. Because anyone with that kind of power is worth fearing, unless He has promised to use His power to protect you to be your refuge and your strength, your fortress, your very present help in trouble, then you truly can be still and know that He is God. Then you can say, whom shall I fear? If, if that kind of God is for me, who or what could ever stand against me? Right? Last note I want to make on verses two and three. Willem van Gemmeren explains in his commentary that these descriptions are more than just symbolic Im- imagery. He says the world catastrophes uh, listed here are the woes of the day of the Lord heralding the messianic age. Read about that in Isaiah 24, Jeremiah 4, Nahum uh, 1-5. These are the signs of the coming day of the Lord when God will return to judge the living and the dead. And so the psalmist is essentially saying we don't have to fear on the day of judgment. Now, you may recall from my standalone message earlier in the summer on racial justice from Amos chapter 5 that the Old Testament prophets frequently warn Israel Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness and not light. Like, be careful wishing that God will return and finally give people what they deserve because that means justice for you, too. And no one is going to be able to stand before the almighty, perfect, holy God on that day and feel good about their own track record. If you are counting on your own good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds on that day and hoping that God will somehow decide, I guess that's good enough, you are going to be sorely mistaken and grieved on that day. And so how can the psalmist assure us here that we really don't have to fear the day of the Lord's coming judgment? That's because on that day of otherwise greatest trouble for all of us, sinners, answering before God for every deed we've done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5.10, on that day we have the promise of a very present help, a mediator who intercedes on our behalf. The songs we've already sung this morning, whoever lives and pleads for me, the man Jesus Christ. He says, you think earthquakes and sea storms are scary. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait until you see the righteous wrath of a holy God against sinful rebellion. And yet, in the face of that threat, that impending storm, Jesus invites us to come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you shelter from the storm. Protection. Selah. We, we, we think this Hebrew word means pause your singing long enough to reflect on the depth and the meaning of what you have just sung. Selah. Number two, God helps us by remaining present. In verses four and five, the scene abruptly shifts from raging seas to a peaceful river We hear there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Tim Keller explains that in the the ancient world, one of the reasons cities were often built on rivers was that it made the city much less vulnerable to siege. One of the strategies for conquering a city in the ancient world was uh, actually the strategy that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar employed to over, overthrow Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. If you couldn't penetrate the city walls, you'd essentially surround it with your army and blockade the city off. No food or supplies would be able to get in or out, uh, and, and then you'd just wait them out. And after long enough, right, they're in trouble. And we read about this happening to God's people in the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, those stories that we hear in the Bible about the Israelites getting so hungry that they, they literally were forced to eat the dead bodies of their own children. This is in the Bible. But if you were built on a river, you could ostensibly close your walls and still have an endless supply of fresh water as well as you know, fish flowing right into town, and that made it very difficult for enemies to blockade. But interestingly... Almost always when the Bible refers to the city of God, it's, I, I, as I said before, it's referring to Jerusalem where the temple was, where God's very presence was, dwelt amongst His people in the Old Testament. And yet Jerusalem is not itself built on a river. It's an in- interesting exegetical note, right? So, so how are we supposed to make sense of verse 4, this, this city with the river running through it? James Boyce explains, the reference here is to the new spiritual jerusalem a symbol of heaven which has been prepared by god as the final dwelling place of the saints the river in verse 4 is the river that flows from god's throne we read about it in ezekiel chapter 47 zechariah 14:8 revelation chapter 22 John says, I saw the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city of God. And so in Psalm 46, this holy place is the dwelling place of God himself in heaven. And the psalmist is prophetically foretelling here this new city of God, announcing in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. God's being, his presence in the midst of her, is her help. The way he puts it in verses 7 and 11 is, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Hebrew word is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know what it's like to be helped by someone's very presence? Just their presence with you changes everything, right? That's Polly, my wife for me, at at parties, at social gatherings where I don't know the majority of people. She knows that going in. Like, I am clinging to her all night long. She better not use, she better use the bathroom before we leave home, or there better be a family restroom, because she is not allowed to leave me alone for any length of time. I used to be that kind of a helping presence for my daughter Ellery at the beginning of the summer when we go to the pool. Now, of course, she's diving in uh, by herself off the diving board, but Back in June, we didn't even have to have a rule about waiting on Daddy to get in the pool because there was no way she would even consider getting near the water without me. That's the kind of dependency the Lord desires of us for Him. He wants to be a very present help to us. Present. God loves it when we cling to Him. He gets glory from being our refuge in trouble so proverbs 3 5 says trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding lean on god not yourself let god's presence be your help and your hope i bet the disciples were a whole lot less worried on every boat ride after that first time jesus calmed the storm right you think they just like didn't worry nearly as much they they look check their weather apps all the forecast "Eh, looks like a good sailing day to me you know storms coming because we know who's sleeping in the boat with us right Jesus's presence was enough friends do we realize that he is still with us today not in body but in spirit now Jesus assures us in John chapter 14 just before he was crucified Raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven, He said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit, He dwells with you and will be in you. The same Spirit that calmed the storms and raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you if you are a born-again follower of Christ. Brothers and sisters, That." should be a game changer for us number three god helps us by executing punishment verses six and eight we hear the nation's rage the kingdom's totter he utters his voice the earth melts come behold the works of the lord how he has brought desolations on the earth Typically in Scripture, when we hear that phrase, come behold the works of the Lord, we expect it to be followed by a beautiful list of all God's wonderful works of creation, like Psalm 104, you know, you stretched out the heavens like a tent, uh, you, you set the earth on its foundation so that it will never be moved, you created all the plants and the animals, and you gave them food and water. But those are not the kinds of works of God that the psalmist is inviting us to behold here in Psalm chapter 46 no here he says see how he has brought desolations on the earth sure it it was an awe-inspiring marvel when god created everything that exists the entire known and unknown universe in a mere six days with nothing but the power of his word but guess what it is an equally awe-inspiring marvel that he's going to melt that very same universe verse six with nothing but the utterance of his voice God has already told us he's going to do it in the last days. This is an apocalyptic psalm, okay? Like so many of the psalms, Psalm 46 works on two levels. Yes, there was certainly this present-day application of these words in the psalmist's own day, whether it was the 9th century B.C. with Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, or the turn of the 7th century with God's miraculous defeat of the Assyrians when, when Jerusalem was way outnumbered. Uh, there, There was no shortage of raging nations and tottering kingdoms many millennia ago that this could refer to, upon which the Lord brought desolations to help and protect his people. That's all true. But there is also another dimension to these words, a future prophetic dimension that looks forward once again to that coming day of the Lord that we've already discussed, here is how the Apostle Peter describes it in the New Testament. He says, The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That sounds a whole lot to me like melting desolations of Psalm 46, doesn't it? Here's how the book of Revelation describes that coming day. John says, The kings of the whole world will assemble for battle on the great day of God the Almighty, and they assembled at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, that's Jerusalem, and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountain was to be found. That sounds a whole lot like mountains being thrown into the heart of the sea while the nations rage in Psalm 46, doesn't it? a day of reckoning is coming friends it's coming God has been warning us about that day for 3,000 years now and Peter warns us here do not listen to those who scoff at such ideas can can you get a little crazy you know like in in your bunker and doomsday whatever yeah you can go overboard maybe but do not Listen to those who scoff. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers, Abraham and Isaac, fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're going to say, look, it's been 2, 4, 6,000 years now. If God was really going to execute judgment on the world, on us, surely He'd have done it by now. I don't have to worry about that. They scoffed in Peter's day. They're still scoffing at us today. And if God has not pulled the trigger yet, before then, they will still be scoffing another thousand or two thousand years from now when Jesus finally does return. But Peter assures us do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't God pulled the trigger yet, sounded the trumpet, Saddled up his cloud, and finally put the raging nations in their rightful place, avenged his people, recreated and restored this broken, fallen world that is groaning for redemption. That all sounds great. We say, Come, Lord Jesus. So why hasn't he done it? It's because God is patient. It's because if, if God can include just one more son or daughter, In His kingdom, just one more soul that He can win over from the kingdom of hell and darkness and rescue them into His kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light instead, God will wait another thousand years because of His great love for you. How long would you wait for your own prodigal child to return back home to you? If you then, who are wicked, know how to wait patiently for your own straying children how much more so will our perfectly loving heavenly father wait for us but do not presume on god's patience on the riches of his kindness do not be mistaken friends he will not wait forever His patience will one day run out. And Matthew 24, 14 warns us, or for those of us who are saved, who can actually now look forward to the coming day of judgment when the Lord returns, because we know that He's not going to judge us according to my own righteousness or my unrighteousness as it were, but rather that God now sees me as clothed in the spotless righteousness of His own Son, Jesus. Matthew 24, 14 promises me, it assures me, that this gospel of God's coming kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. That once everyone on this earth has had a chance to hear the good news, to accept or reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior, he's not going to wait another second. Because God is looking forward to that coming day when He will get to gather all of His people, every nation, tribe, and tongue, all together at last around His heavenly banquet table, God's family. God is looking forward to that day even more than you and I are, Christian. And so if you're looking forward to it, if a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more crying or sickness or, or, or death or pandemics or elections, right? if that all sounds really good to you right now, I implore you today, do your part and go tell someone about Jesus. Because as long as your neighbor across the street thinks that church is all about dressing up to impress God, as long as she thinks that that the gospel is that if you try your hardest to be a good person, maybe, just maybe, God will accept you, Until your neighbor hears the truth that she is a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and praise God, He has provided one in Jesus, and and, and until she has the opportunity to trust in Him today and be saved, until she's heard the good news, God might as well be waiting on you for His return. We end every Sunday here at West Hills the same way, claiming that we're going to go out and make disciples of all nations. Will we? Today? This week? Really? If all two billion Christians actually got motivated and decided to actually do, on any given Sunday, what what God has actually left us here to do, and we each just told two of our neighbors, two and a half neighbors, about Jesus, the Great Commission would be finished tomorrow, and I'm convinced Jesus would probably be back the next day, that, that Monday. Is he waiting on us, West Hills? Has everyone in St. Louis heard? Has everyone in your neighborhood heard? In your sphere of influence? Is he waiting on you, on me? There is a coming day of the Lord when everything will be made right and the Lord will execute justice and punishment for all who deserve it. That's all of us. We all deserve it and the only way that God's justice is a help to sinners like you and me is if he's not judging us according to our own righteousness but according to Christ so I ask you have you trusted in Jesus this morning and if you have have you shared that good news with someone else in your circle of influence who is otherwise walking around right now somewhere today totally oblivious to the fact that in any given moment if they get hit by a semi-truck and go to meet their maker, they will face the punishment that is rightfully due a rebellious sinner like them unless they've repented and trusted in Jesus for their salvation. That threat should keep us awake at night every so often. We should feel the weight of that responsibility that opportunity that Jesus has left us with to partner with Him in seeing His kingdom of light advance in this broken world. We need Him. They need Him. Which brings us finally to number four. God helps us by bringing peace. Verses 9 and 10. God makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Isaiah 2.4 says, God shall judge between the nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation on that day. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And once again, there's a big picture, apocalyptic future fulfillment of this judgment day for all people that is still to come where there will be no war in the new heavens and the new earth, but there is also a personal application for each of us in this verse this morning. Because the most dangerous war, you need to hear this this morning, the most dangerous war that you need to be concerned with today is not the threat of a second civil war if Trump doesn't get reelected and he refuses to leave office. It's not the the escalating tensions between the U.S. and China, or the ever-present threat of Iran or North Korea. It's not even the final battle between God's army and the powers of darkness. No, the most dangerous war that you and I need to be worried about today is the war raging inside your own heart. It is the war between the indwelling sin that still lives within you and the holy spirit that is convicting you right now of that sin and of your desperate need for a savior from it that is the war that you need to be concerned about we are so needy friends you are so needy we need help we need a god who can make war cease not just to the ends of the earth but to the depths of our hearts we need a god Who can say, peace, be still, not just to the wind and the waves, but to the storms in our souls. We need a God who can say, be still and know that I am God. And whose very presence brings us the protection from the punishment of sin that we otherwise deserve. A Savior who brings us peace. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And He can bring you peace today if you will but surrender your life to Him in faith. Will you do that this morning? Make no mistake. This is where we end. God will be exalted. Verse 10. God claims, I I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The question is, Will you bend your knee? Will you confess with your tongue of your own volition? Will you be amongst the humble who will be exalted on the day of the Lord? Or will you be one of the proud who must be humbled? Will you still be caught saying, no God, I got this. No daddy, I want to do this on my own. Repent therefore and turn back. That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, his only Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.